Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trusts Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organization, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. This week, in addition to reviewing the week's most important news and announcements from the investment trust sector, I'm joined by Ewan Lovett-Turner, Head of Investment Trust Research at Numis Securities, to talk about the markets and some of the more interesting developments across the sector so far this year. Numis itself, one of the bigger corporate broking houses in the UK, has been in the news this week after the firm agreed a takeover by Deutsche Bank at a 70% premium to the pre-announcement share price which some have taken to be a contrarian vote of confidence in the unloved UK equity market after a tough year for IPOs and corporate activity, not just in the investment trust sector, but also across the equity market as a whole. I'm old enough to remember when Deutsche Bank came charging in three years after Big Bang, back in the 1980s, to buy the famous merchant bank Morgan Grenfell and try to compete with the big US houses as they took over the London investment banking and broking market That worked for a while, but it all fell apart after the global financial crisis. And eventually, well, actually, I see it was just four years ago, Deutsche Bank finally closed their London equities business down. Well, now, intriguingly, they are back, at least in the broking business. How will it go this time? The timing is certainly interesting, coming just as the FCA has announced plans to amend the listing rules to make it easier for companies to float in the London market. And general concern about the way that the UK equity market has not only shriveled to under 5% of global market capitalization, but also trades on a steep valuation discount when compared to the US market, which in turn has tempted more UK-based companies either to go to the US to list their shares or at least say that they're considering doing so. After that discussion with you and I talked to Laura Elkin, Portfolio Manager of AEW UK REIT, ticker AEWU which is among the best-performing diversified commercial property trusts over five years. I talked to her about how she and her colleagues are coping with the tough new world of higher interest rates, possible recession, and falling capital values, the latter down on average across the commercial property sector by nearly 15% in the fourth quarter of last year, though roughly flat since then. We discuss whether the worst is now behind us in the sector, or is there more pain still to come? And how sustainable is that tempting-looking 8% yield you can get by buying shares in AEW UK REIT? For subscribers to Moneymaker's Circle, our subscription service, this week we have an in-depth profile of BlackRock Energy and Resources, ticker B-E-R-I, which follows our profile of Biopharma Credit last week and Fidelity European, ticker F-E-V, the week before that. Coming up, we have profiles of Octopus Renewables Infrastructure and J.P. Morgan American. We also have our usual summary of the main news and NAV share price and discount movements in the investment trust sector this week, both year-to-date and over longer periods. This week, the markets have been digesting the latest interest rate announcements from central banks. Both the Federal Reserve and European Central Bank have raised their core rates by 0.25%, although the Fed says it is now in a position to consider pausing its uh, tightening program. And the markets continue to fret over the future of regional banks in the US, following the collapse of Silicon Valley and Signature Bank in March, and the more recent fire sale 
sale of First Republic Bank just last weekend to J.P. Morgan. Two more regional banks have seen their share prices tumble this week over concerns about possible flight of uninsured depositors. Although central banks have been keen to tell everyone that the banking system is sound and there's no risk of a repeat of the global financial crisis, which is true at least in narrow sense, this crisis is different in nature to the one we had back then, that has so far done little to stop the run on regional bank share prices. In the bond markets, however, yields were generally up this week and equity markets were broadly down, Japan being a notable exception to that trend. Although a strong US jobless report on Friday, which came too late for the European markets, helped the S&P recover around 1% of the ground it had lost earlier in the week. The Investment Trust Index, which tracks about 190 of the trusts that are included in the FTSE All Share Index, was down a short 1%, with once again roughly an equal number of trusts on the 380-strong list I look at gaining and falling. Notable gainers include several of the stronger private equity trusts and a handful of Asian names. Energy and commodity trusts uh, stood out in the list of losers, reflecting the recent weakness of commodities, both the oil price, the gold price and others. The average capitalization weighted discount has narrowed a tad, but still stands just over 15%. Along with some interesting corporate developments, which I discuss with Ewan shortly, it's been a relatively quiet week for results, most of those being interims rather than full-year figures. All the details of those are on the website. The most impressive showing perhaps came from uh, Bailey Gifford's Keystone Positive Change Trust, ticker KPC, which reported an NAV total return of 14% for its latest six-month period some 8% ahead of its benchmark. It comes, however, after a rotten year in 2022, and the shares, along with the bulk of trusts in the Bailey Gifford stable, still trade on a wide discount, around 15% in the case of Keystone positive change. Uh, That is not as wide as the lingering 20% discount you'll find over at Scottish Mortgage, Bailey Gifford's largest trust, which this week announced has recruited two new non-executive directors, following the uh, acrimonious row earlier this year that saw one of its former NEDs, American Business School Professor Amar Bide, leave the board after criticising the trust's governance and the chairwoman Fiona McBride saying she will be standing down at the AGM next month. International Biotechnology Trust, ticker IBT, whose management arrangements are currently under review by the board, also reported some good interim numbers. More on that one too in a moment. Among the other NAV and other updates from the alternative sector, there were contrasting statements from three renewable energy infrastructure trusts, Aquila Energy Efficiency Trust, ticker AEET, confirming its plan to go into managed wind-down after an earlier adverse continuation vote, but the board warning that it could take years to unwind some of its investments. Bluefield Solar announced a refinancing of its debt, while Forsart Solar, FSFL, said it's starting a £10 million share buyback programme. Chrysalis, the growth capital trust, now trading at a 55% discount to its reported NAV, said that a majority of holdings were now either profitable or set to become so. In the commercial property sector, Ediston Property Income Trust, ticker EPIC, which has been advertising for a merger with another trust, said it hopes to complete its strategic review in the third quarter after receiving several expressions of interest. Apex Global Alpha, ticker APAX, meanwhile, always among the first private equity trusts to report, announced an NAV total return of 1.9% in the first quarter. The discount on this one has narrowed, but uh, only to 25%, 
still better than a good number of its peers, however. So after the uh, things we've just been discussing, it was a good moment to catch up with Ewan Lovett-Turner, who is Head of Investment Trust Research at Numis Securities. Numis Securities being part of the listed company Numis, the investment bank and broking firm, which uh, this week has announced it's in a subject of an agreed takeover by Deutsche Bank. Obviously, I'm not going to go into the detail of that with you, Ewan, for obvious reasons. It's still got to be approved by shareholders and all the other fine things that um, restrict sometimes what we can talk about. But what I can say is that it's very good to see that the value of you and your colleagues in the firm has come in Deutsche Bank's valuation about 70% higher than uh, the current share market. So there's obviously they've seen a lot of hidden value in there. So <laughs> if it does go through, I'm sure you'll uh, we'll look forward to uh, continuing to talk uh, whatever the branding on the front door. So let's talk uh, first then about the markets this week. We've obviously had uh, a couple of interest rate decisions from the uh, Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank and continued kind of ructions about the regional banking system in the US. Uh, But without going into those particular issues, what's your take on where we are looking back over the first uh, few months of this, uh, this year? Yeah, it's, well, been overall positive and equity markets uh, are up over the course of the year, but it's been quite a, a winding road through the course of that. And uh, the FTSE All Share up nearly 5%, 4.6%. MSCI World, with a fairly heavy weighting in the US, up 3.5%. And the, the tech-heavy NASDAQ, quite in- instructive, up close to 10% year-to-date. And that's really showing the significant moves where quite a few of those tech stocks, the large mega-cap tech stocks, have been performing pretty well. And the markets generally you know, rallied, it rallied in the early part of the year, sold off in February through to mid-March and then have recovered a bit, really a a lot around the interest rate expectations and and therefore people's view both on the economy and uh, and the interest rates and a bit of continued flip-flopping between growth and value strategies, but certainly that recovery in tech we've seen in numerous areas. And that's been reflected in investment companies' performance year-to-date as well, what we've seen amongst Equity funds, some of the strongest performers have had high weightings to growth and technology stocks. Uh, Manchester and London up over 20%, with uh, nearly 30% of its portfolio in, in Microsoft. And Martin Curry Global, Polar Capital Tech, all performing well. Quality growth names like Smithson and, and Finsbury Growth and Income uh, performing pretty well. And, and generally, European trusts up there, all over, up more than 10%, the likes of Fidelity. JP Morgan and Henderson managed vehicles. Tougher time, you know, not all tech stocks uh, or, or tech exposed or growth exposed doing well with Scottish Mortgage and Edinburgh Worldwide being relatively weak year to date, largely on a share price derating rather than the underlying NEVs. Tough times in China and Biotech Growth Trust also having a difficult start to the year. On the alternative sides, a mixed picture for some of the private equity names with a number of them, CT, private equity, Princess, Oakley, all doing quite well on solid navs and, and a, a bit of a re-rating, whilst others like Harvest and ICG Enterprise have actually derated a bit on that, while other growth-focused names like Shahali and Molten Ventures have had a difficult time. Infrastructure also weak. A number of the trusts there, more specialist ones, derating there as well. 
Yes, it's been an interesting market. I kind of describe it as uh, overall investors seem to be there uh, trying to work out which way we're going to go from here. Markets have been sort of ranging a little bit, up a little bit, but ranging sideways a lot. People trying to get their head around this big issue of whether inflation has been licked, whether interest rates are coming down, how fast they're coming down, is there going to be a recession? But the interesting impact on the investment trust sector, it seems to me, is that, well, two things. One is discounts remain on average, very wide, though that's perhaps uh, not helped by the fact that some of the very larger trusts have moved out and they have a bigger say in the overall picture. But also the fact that there's increasing sort of differentiation within sectors. I think that seemed to be interesting to me that, as you've just mentioned, people are looking a bit more closely sort of underneath the bonnet and trying to work out who is uh, you know good in this environment, who is uh, more risky. And that's, I would say, creating you know opportunities and challenges in equal measure. In terms of you know where your clients are looking at things, are you finding that people are minded to try and pick up, you know, discount opportunities, or are they still very wary of the overall market outlook? I think it is still um, a note of caution from investors. They're not willing to wholesale dive into some of these um, opportunities, trying to still work out the wider ramifications of rapidly rising and higher interest rates on their portfolios. And and certainly you've seen the US and to the degree the European banking system having its issues and that, that continues. And I think investors just wondering where those ripples of in- interest rate rises, which ones sort of peter out into nothing or, or, or others that sort of build into the tsunami over time and just wondering if there's some areas that might be hit again. So definitely assessing that quality of the holdings that they've got are they performing as expected in this environment? But generally, volumes and liquidity of trading relatively low, very little issuance and discount widening. As you mentioned, equity investment trusts have widened year to date by a, a couple of percent from nine to 11 percent. And that, that 11 percent average is not far off where we saw post the mini budget at the back end of last year. The long term average would be more like seven and the tightest was about four and a half at the back end of 2021, tightest for some time. And alternatives, investment companies have, have also widened from about 20% to 23%. So very wide by historic standards, particularly some of the infrastructure names, as you say, sort of where there's worries about quality as a sector widening from four to seven percent. Uh, property, in fact, has narrowed a bit, but remains wide on a, over a 20% discount. And private equity trusts uh, remaining stubbornly wide uh, discounts in the the mid to high 30% range through the course of this year. Yeah, we might come back to talk about one or two of those uh, one of those sectors in broad terms. I want to just pick up with you a couple of uh, news items this week, if I might, before we get on to that. Let's talk about uh, Ashoka White Oak Emerging Markets Trust. We haven't had an IPO of any size since the early part of last year. And this one was obviously notable for being actually sort of getting on the launch pad, but it only just got off the ground, didn't it? Yes, it squeezed past its minimum of 30 million net proceeds with yeah, raising gross proceeds of 30.8 million pounds. So very small. So the IPO drought that started at the back end of 2021 and there were no IPOs through 2022, well, ended in a bit of a, a dribble rather than a flood in that you have had a, a couple of IPOs this year, onward opportunities, an aim quoted vehicle run by Dowgate investing in small caps. That raised just 13 million or just under and a shocker white oak, the 30 million. And that does make it a pretty tough task to build that into a, a fund with more widespread appeal. It will have a pretty concentrated register 
and be off the radar of many, the management group will probably have a, a reasonable stake. I think they committed to put about five million in, uh, so that might be sixteen percent. But haven't yet seen the announcements of that. But um, a manager that has built a really strong reputation through the Ashoka India vehicle that has performed since launch very well and, and, and has a very differentiated approach. So that was a good sort of starting point for them, but it does demonstrate what a, a tough market it is. And, and the manager now will need to try and attract further demand over time. And, and they did do that with the Indian vehicle. It, that launched at just 45 million in 2018 and, and now is over 200. So through performance and issuance, that has grown to a meaningful size but it's pretty hard work to put that on the radar of, uh, of too many investors. Do you think it would have got away if they hadn't said they weren't actually charging them, they haven't got a management fee, they're only taking a performance fee? Do you think that might have clinched it for one or two people? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting fee structure. You've obviously got the assets right. There's a similar structure chosen by um, Woodford and Woodford Patient Capital. So having a good fee structure doesn't necessarily lead to good returns, but it is... In the current environment, when when many investors are focused on cost, then that that potentially is a payoff that's quite attractive. And it is really endemic of the very slow nature of issuance in the investment companies world. Year to date, there's only been uh, $780 on issuance. If you put that on a run rate basis for the year, that's that's $2.3 compared to uh, last year's $5.5 which was already down 66% from the 16 billion in, in 2021. So very different environment. A few equity income funds are currently raising capital, the likes of City and London and Merchants. JP Morgan Global Growth and Income is a regular issuer currently and towards the top in recent weeks has been 24 income, which you know benefits from investing in European ABS, which is a floating rate asset class. So um, they've been the key issuers in recent weeks and during the course of the year, issuance dominated by 350 million from Brevin Howard Macro, which very well sought after for its defensive nature, although it's had a, a more difficult time of late. And um, 3i Infrastructure also raising just over 100 million earlier in the year. So a few funds raising money, but pretty quiet on that front. It's a pretty dry old landscape, you're right. It's on the other side of the coin, before we come back to things we were originally going to talk about. Obviously, one of the consequences of the sort of funding drought is the fact that a lot of trusts are having to look at their balance sheets and the way they're financed because they can no longer go back to the market to raise more equity. I'm thinking particularly of trusts in the alternative space, so in uh, renewable energy infrastructure and so on. But perhaps you might just pick up on one in that space, which is Aquila Energy Efficiency Trust, which I think the board's decided after being criticised, being slow to invest its proceeds from its IPO, has decided to go into managed runoff. Do you think we're going to see any more examples like that? Yeah, I think you do at this stage. You had a lot of issuance of infrastructure and especially property vehicles over recent years. Probably the wave of new issues before that was in the listed debt sector. When they stopped raising capital, you then really saw the quality of the underlying assets, the quality of the cash flows, and a number of vehicles then wind up. You're probably seeing a similar thing here where things, if they haven't gone to plan, as you say, with the energy efficiency, very slow to deploy those proceeds and relatively subscale vehicle, it makes sense to put that into to manage wind down. 
similar situations with US solar funds. And yeah, there's some issues going on with Thomas Lloyd as well, which look a bit more, uh, certainly a a few issues going on there that that we'll find out over time. So I think that will be the nature of things. And um, some of the lower quality get whittled out and you're you're hopefully left with companies that have uh, then got proven records of delivering attractive cash flows. Yeah, so there's a general rule, not obviously true in all cases, that uh, sort of latecomers to a sort of fundraising fad tend to often disappoint, it's probably fair to say. Let's talk about private equity then, an interesting sector where, as you mentioned earlier, there's obviously big discounts in there, stubbornly big discounts, you could say, in many cases. And despite a lot of talk last year from some of the bigger trusts there that they were going to take action to get the discounts to come in, it hasn't really worked so far on the whole, has it? What's your general view on that sector at the moment? Do you think that we are about to see the turning point as far as sentiment towards them is concerned? Or is it, as others would believe, you know, we've still got the full fallout from the rising bond yield environment and so on to come through? I think you're unlikely to get a wholesale change of view over a short period. But I think sentiment should improve over time. Costs have been a key headwind in this sector as well. And there's talk of potential change on cost reporting, which would mean that more people can own these wealth managers and, and, and fund of funds. But I think the, the important thing is delivering evidence of the valuations of the portfolio and making realizations to support that. So the pace of realizations is slow. We have seen it slower than the, uh, previous years, but we are getting deals coming through that, that I think are proving the valuation. Certainly NAVs for Q1, well, ultimately, the year end December, people were quite concerned about that. But most of those valuations have come through and been pretty robust, particularly given equity market strength in the, the back end of the year. And now we're getting indications this year, the likes of Oakley and Apex up nearly 2% in Q1, Princess 1.5%, even Chrysalis up a, a similar level. And sort of true evaluation marks in the secondary market and private equity that for buyout funds is trading, I understand, at, at sort of 10 to 15 percent. But we have seen high quality portfolios. So HG Capital Trust, the listed fund, actually sold in the secondary market part of its exposure to HG Genesis 8 early in the new year at the December valuation. So that's an example of yeah another secondary investor um, is perfectly happy paying up at NEV compared to the wide discounts we're seeing in the market. And we've also seen a number of um, transactions. Rick Capital's one that's sold something at a, a 30% uplift from its private section of its portfolio, um, Infinity Data Centers. It's mentioned Webull raising money above valuation and two of its top 10 private positions, it's agreed sales at valuation. So I think those sort of markers, as more and more of those come through, people get increasingly comfortable. Um, many investors have been questioning whether public or private valuations are right, generally implying that they're expecting big write-downs from private assets to, to match public markets. But in fact, now you're you're seeing private equity saying that public valuations are wrong and you're starting to see public to private transactions where Already this year, from Apex's portfolio, Duck Creek Technologies, a software business has been taken off the market by Vista at a big uplift to Apex's carrying value. And there's press reports of ThoughtWorks, one of its other listed in the Apex portfolio, that Apex might take it back off the market to be a private company. So deals like that saying private equity don't think um, or think they're very attractive valuations in public markets. 
Right, so those are certainly at least straws in the wind. That in itself won't be enough to get the discounts to reverse, as you say, but it, it will be enough perhaps to put a floor under where the uh, NAVs are in absolute terms, and they'll hope for the discounts to narrow in due course. Is, is that what you're saying, or are you saying that these transactions will turn things around uh, in terms of sentiment as well? Well, I think these types of transactions give comfort on the valuations. That's one aspect that's contributing to discounts. Another aspect certainly is is fees, which is a tricky one to tackle. That requires some regulatory change to get a better backdrop behind that. And then it's a case of yeah, tackling any other issues and marketing and communication and getting out there and trying to encourage new buyers to the sector. We're seeing investors understanding or trying to get exposure to private assets through the quasi-open-ended LTAF-type vehicles. So perhaps alternatives and private assets coming more onto the radar of people will then highlight the best uh, vehicles to hold these within is actually an investment trust where where you can get less liquid assets. So you can comfortably hold less liquid assets without any sort of mismatch with your other capital flows. So a broad number of potential things and, and buybacks is another one that I think can be useful to boards to demonstrate uh, capital discipline. Uh, they can help limit that discount volatility. You can't really march in a discount, but you can limit the volatility. You can provide a bit of liquidity, which is an issue in this sector for some of the bigger investors. But yeah, ultimately, a number of things need to align for discounts to start coming in meaningfully. Do you think boards are doing enough on buybacks in more general terms? I mean, we've seen one or two examples, as you say, coming up in the alternative asset sector where they haven't been very common at all, partly because those assets are often illiquid and therefore the room for manoeuvre is quite limited. But there is a view that some boards aren't doing as much as they said they would do and they should be doing a bit more in terms of uh, share buybacks. Would you expect to see that? We have seen the pace of buybacks increase, actually, through this year. As the discounts are widened, you've seen seen a pickup in buyback activity, which is what you would hope. It's running at similar levels to where we saw, again, during that period of volatility and discount widening around the mini budget, September, October last year. So I think that is a positive. I favor using buybacks, having the, a slightly wider objective than just trying to narrow a discount, but providing that liquidity providing accretion, creating accretion through buying back at a discount and managing discount volatility and, and providing some liquidity are all things boards should be looking at. Uh, we have seen an increase and, and quite interestingly the, over the last couple of years, it's the change in attitude to alternative investment companies. The boards of those have been more willing to buy back shares and you've seen to the degree some property funds who have ended up with, with cash through disposals and some private equity funds, but after some early hopes, that's relatively patchy. And more recently, the infrastructure funds and renewables, many of them stating that they were going to be more active in buying back shares, particularly we've had Next Energy and Foresight Solar make statements around that. And so needs to be done in context with balance sheets if you're, you're looking at the alternative investment companies which have less liquid portfolios. So there you have less flexibility to return capital, but I think it can be done in the context, particularly where you've got high levels of dividend cover um, at, at the moment for most of the renewable funds, certainly. And if you've got some excess cash, then using that to buy back shares can be a positive for investors. Just finally then, on the alternative sector, we obviously see the alternatives go from being a relatively small part of the market for investor trust into uh, you know, almost half the 
market cap at its peak. As you say, a number of trusts are having to either recycle their capital or do buybacks or try and sell things to realize cash. Uh, so would it be fair to say that we're reaching the kind of maturity stage of what is still a relatively uh, new part of the investment trust universe? In other words, do you think it's going to shrink a little bit over the next two, three years and uh, we'll be left with some, as you say, proven warriors, if you like, but overall perhaps a smaller part of the investment trust universe? Or do you in fact see more demand for uh, alternative assets uh, coming into the sector? I think it will be a bit of both. You'll get some funds winding up and you always do. And I think that's the really interesting thing about the investment trust sector is that there's constant evolution and change about the nature of funds and the nature of asset classes you can get exposure to. Investment companies that don't perform well or have structural issues are typically forced to make changes either to mandate, to managers, to discount control structures, the position of the board and of shareholders' ability to influence that in difficult situations is kind of a unique feature. And that independence and ability to affect change does mean that you, you get funds winding up and you get new ones being born in their place. And we've we've forever seen that. And I think that's actually incredibly healthy that if something isn't performing, then someone's holding the, the feet to the fire and that gets sorted out. But overall, I, w- I would expect at some point that IPO markets reopen and the likely focus is, is going to continue to be for new issues, is likely to continue to be alternative assets, given the investment company structure is just well suited to holding these less liquid asset classes. So um, I think that probably does continue. Will it be in different areas? Quite possibly. Again, that continuous evolution tends to happen and we, we satisfy the needs that investors have at that point in time. So probably a continued trend, but um, it's looking like it's still a, a while before it, it opens with any vengeance. On one specific in this context, I might just add this question about something we heard again this week about uh, International Biotechnology Trust, ticker IBT. It looks like the two portfolio managers uh, are going to re-emerge somewhere else with another firm employing them, if I've got the story right. Can you explain what's going on there? And do you think this, this is a somewhat unusual turn of events? So International Biotech Trust, the management group, SV Life Sciences, are largely focused on venture investing across various areas of life sciences and, and headed by Kate Bingham, who many people will know is uh, given her role as head of the UK vaccine task force. And they as a business have decided to focus on on that unquoted investing and the, the team. And it was a you know, reasonably siloed team doing the, the quoted bit of international biotech. So SV gave their notice and the board have, have started and are running a process and they just released this this week in the interim results and an update on that that they've got six on the short list and will be selecting from that. I believe, as you mentioned, that that um, the existing management team were part of the options of what could be the um, final decision of where we would go. But that's still very much a an ongoing process, and and I'd expect to hear in due course when the board's been through that process. And and you did see the discount on the trust has widened given this uncertainty about what's what's going to happen. So it'll be interesting to see if that narrows when there's a bit more clarity about what the future is for the fund. 
Yes, I mean, you would think it would be odd. You'd think if the two existing managers were to carry on with another employer, and it's not certain, of course, that that's the outcome we're going to get. But if that was the case, then you would expect that whatever the rating was before, there'd be no reason for it not to be the same again in future, should we put it that way? Yeah, and the existing management team have been doing pretty well. There's been a number of takeovers of, of companies in the portfolio that's really been boosting performance. And I think that area of the market, the, the biotech, is really fascinating and an interesting one and potentially an area where... For a manager that can pick out the winners, there should be good opportunities to generate alpha. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, uh, I had the chance this week to talk to Laura Elkin, who is the portfolio manager of the AEW UK REIT, which is an interesting commercial property investment trust with a market capitalization of around $160 million. I think uh, known to some listeners of this podcast and to me because it was I think the only uh, commercial property trust that actually didn't cut its dividend during the pandemic, which is a mark of honour, I guess. And we'll come back to talk about the dividend in a moment. But first, Laura, perhaps for people who don't know AEW, it is one of the smaller commercial property trusts in the investment trust sector. Perhaps you can just briefly explain what your strategy is and how that differs from uh, some of the bigger, larger peers in the uh, commercial property sector. Thanks, Jonathan. So at AEW, we IPO'd this REIT back in 2015, and it's the same strategy that we have been running since that time. We are, in effect, a value investment focus on UK commercial property that is unconstrained by sector. And we think that it is incredibly important to be unconstrained by sector in order to be able to deliver a value strategy to our shareholders. The reason for that is, is that it allows us to effectively shop across the whole of the commercial property market um, to find value where we best find it at any given time. As an example of that, back in the early days of investing for this REIT, we were buying a lot of industrial properties at good levels of relative value that we've seen a lot of capital appreciation from. Um, and we have not been buying those in the same industrial properties in recent years because we have felt that the values were not representing relative value at that time. And we think we are of the UK uh, diversified commercial property REITs in that sort of cohort. We think we are the only one who is really delivering a true value focus. And and we think that sets us apart from those peers. That has seen us deliver the strongest NAV total return from that UK diversified REIT peer group over a six month period and over three years and five years. I think we are joint first over one year also. That's very impressive. And just perhaps then to fill out the picture a little bit further, how many sort of properties at any one time are you likely to be invested in and what kind of lot size do you go for? and What kind of buildings and uh, factories and so on are you actually uh, looking to invest in for that price? So we have generally had a focus on smaller assets. And by that, we mean broadly in the 5 to 15 million lot size bracket. We like that bracket because we often see a yield advantage for buying there. We find that there is a lower level of competition that allows us to access greater value. It tends to be a a lot size bracket where we find it's slightly too large for private investors, but also slightly too small for a lot of large institutional investment houses. So we tend to find a competitive edge by operating in, in that bracket. In terms of the types of properties that we hold, though, you are specifically about that. And, and I would just touch on our portfolio weightings here. So the portfolio is currently weighted with around 45% exposure to industrials. That's a position that we have held for quite a long time. 
We've been building a position more recently in retail. Um, and I think, again, that sort of slightly sets us apart. We like to think of ourselves as counter-cyclical investors. So often if a sector is very unloved by a lot of other investors, um, I'm not saying that we would buy that indiscriminately. We were buying that very selectively where we feel that certain assets are mispriced. Um, so we have more recently been building a position in retail property, both on the high street and in retail warehousing. So that weighting now accounts for around 40% of the portfolio. And when you talk about uh, being a value investor, so let's just dig into a little bit what that might mean. Can you put some sort of numbers around that? What sort of target return are you trying to make? And does the value come from being able to buy at a very good price? How much of that is also due to what you do with the property once you've got it? So I think it's really a bit of both, but I would say that, of course, depending on how sort of markets move, it is very much to do with our active asset management approach. So when we buy assets, it tends to be very few assets in our portfolio that we will simply hold and collect the income. Of course, there are some assets where we do that. And and, and that is, of course, very beneficial to our ability to pay out a high level of income back to our shareholders. But also we like to very actively manage our assets. And I talked about buying assets that deliver a high uh, income return on day one in that lot size bracket. Of course, there are many assets out there that we could be buying at an initial day one high income return. It's choosing those assets that deliver that income return sustainably over a, a medium term period, over our hold period. So when it, it comes to a lease end, We actually very much like to have those real conversations with tenants where we can either look to improve income streams and keep that high yield running through and being delivered by the property or to just keep that yield coming on or or to improve it in order to benefit on the capital side as well. So another characteristic of the assets that we often like to buy is that they often have shorter income streams. And when I say short, I think our, our average length of lease in the portfolio at the moment is around three to four years. So So when I say short, I don't mean very short, just I think that's slightly shorter than the average in commercial property nowadays. We see that very much as an opportunity. If you can imagine a property that's let on a 10-year lease, the day after you've signed that 10-year lease, effectively, the value of that property is maximised and it will decrease from there onwards. We're looking to not buy the asset at the maximum value point. We're looking to buy the asset at a price that is more in line with its long-term fundamentals. Because we're buying it a midway through its lease, we're not paying the highest price on day one. And we are benefiting for that throughout the, the hold period. Okay, so... I mean, I think just to quote some numbers here, you know, the NAV uh, return over the last five years has been about 63%. So you're delivering something in the region of 11 12% total return over that kind of period, I think, which is very impressive for commercial property. Before we just go on and talk about what's actually happening in the market, has been happening the last few months, which is very interesting, of course. What's your policy on gearing? Because obviously gearing can make a huge difference to uh, commercial property returns. It can be very good in the good times and not so good in the bad times. What is your policy on uh, gearing and what is it currently at at the moment? So our LTV at the moment is around 30%. That is the level at which we target and we would look to target that over the long term. So it has always been at that level effectively, plus or minus a few percent, of course, as values fluctuate. That's where we want to keep it. We think that's a fairly conservative level for the strategy that we're operating here. We have a debt facility at the moment that is at a fixed 
cost and we fixed that that debt facility in place just over a year ago now. It was in May last year um, and we fixed for five years. So we have that cost fixed now for another four years at a very low level, 2.96% all in. Now, I I would add that we have an in-house debt team here who I am internally indebted to. We had a a floating charge debt facility in place before, and it was around sort of late 2021 that they came to my desk and were flagging to me loud and clear that we should be refinancing that facility ahead of time because they could foresee that the cost of debt was going to significantly increase during the course of last year. So we started having those conversations to refinance the facility that we had in place about 18 months ahead of its term because of the foresight of of our in-house debt team. And that led us to being able to fix the cost at that low rate for another five years. And of course, that looks now to be very beneficial. Indeed, it does. So that was commendable foresight there. But of course, it has been a very tough period, as we know, since the start of our, since that period, really faced with uh, rising bond yields in particular, plus uh, slowing economy, perhaps now we're beginning to see. These aren't ideal conditions for commercial property. And of course, you've not been immune either from the impact that rising bond yields have had. So uh, can you just describe how, if you like, the big sell-off in commercial property, or re-rating, I should say, of commercial property, to be precise, how that's affected you? It obviously really got uh, significant in the second half of last year, but um, just describe how that's uh, affected the value of what you own. Yeah, so of course, a lot of that happened in Q4 last year. And during Q4, we saw our own values decline in the order of about 12%. There had been a couple of percent decline in the quarter before that. So I think top to bottom, we saw around 15% value loss across our portfolio Very much in line with the market, of course, some, and I'm thinking particularly at the prime end of logistics, um, saw significantly larger amounts than that. I am grateful to the valuation institution in UK property that they dealt with that very quickly. And I think given the sort of macroeconomic signals, i.e. the sort of ramping up of the cost of debt throughout last year, that really was something that needed to happen. and, And I'm grateful that that was dealt with fairly swiftly. First of all, because it, I guess, from the perspective of our investors, sort of kept things as transparent as they could possibly be in terms of of values. And that's, of course, the way it should be. Looking at at that from the other hand, though, from our our perspective in terms of looking opportunistically at, at investments, we were very lucky to have the foresight to have sold out of some assets where we were taking profit off the table in late summer last year. So I'm talking specifically about two assets being in Oxford and Glasgow that we sold um, to developers for alternative use in order to maximise their value. Um, And Oxford in particular was sold at a significant profit at that time. So coming into the end of last year and in particular into Q4, we had for our strategy a significant amount of capital that we we were looking to reinvest. And it's really times of value adjustment that as a value investor, you can find a lot more mispricing and a lot more opportunity. So actually, we were in some ways very interested and and quite excited looking at our investment pipeline at that time and, and, and really have been ever since to this day. Very interested in in how this a period of increased volatility in the values of commercial property plays into our opportunity set, um, and I think that's really 
represented in some purchases that we made during the course of Q4 last year and have continued to make since. So during Q4, when a lot of others were perhaps sat on the sidelines undertaking some some pricing discovery, we took the decision to make two purchases and bought some retail assets, um, one located in Central Bath and another one in Bromley and Greater London, for yields of close to 9% and values that I would estimate to be some circa 20% lower than where those assets might have traded previously. So I think that's kind of representative of our view. I've previously described us as being counter-cyclical investors, and I, I hope that sort of sends the message that, yeah, that really was quite an interesting time for us. And that has continued into this year. Now, there's less pricing discovery going on because we have been, as a commercial property industry, through a couple of valuation dates um, with a couple of quarter ends since then. But across the commercial property market, transaction volumes are still lower than average. Um, and during that kind of time, we do still see increased opportunity. Of course, when volumes are lower, there's less competition out there. So we are still finding a significant amount of, of property looking very attractively priced in our pipeline. And we made an acquisition during Q1, a retail warehousing asset in Preston that we bought for an initial yield of 9.5%. And again, I think that goes to show the opportunity set that's out there for us. Yeah, well, these are impressive valuations. I guess some people would be surprised, though, that you're investing in retail. You say you're, if you're a contracyclical investor, you, you, most people would be, I think, worried about what's going to happen to retail, you know, if there is a recession and so on. But how would you answer people who say that surely these high yields are actually suggesting that uh, these assets might not be quite what they're made out to be? Yeah, I think it really comes down to doing a lot of due diligence on the assets. And we see so many assets, so not just retail assets, we see so many assets for purchase that are particularly offering high yields that don't pass our due diligence. You know, thousands of properties that we analyse that we don't consider to offer a sustainable value in their pricing. It's sifting out the assets that do And that can take a lot of work, but it leads to some pretty interesting conclusions in in the assets that we've bought. I would add that some of the vendors that we've bought from in these three assets that I've pointed out that we've bought here since that mispricing began, some of these I know that we have bought from vendors who had indiscriminately chosen to exit from the retail sector for the reasons that you've just described. And again, that can be an area of opportunity for us. You know, we tend to not indiscriminately rule out an entire area of the market and more interested in sort of sifting through those assets to try and find value. And what has driven us to really seeing these as assets as value opportunities is very often knowing how much revenue the tenant generates from each of these sites. So in Bromley, the tenant has a turnover linked lease and therefore we have a direct visibility on how much revenue next to generating from that store. And the trend in those figures is only going up. And we know, therefore, how committed they are to that location. We saw, going back to the the pandemic, of course, a large number of retail CVAs. And it would be clearly the sites which are not generating those high levels of revenue that would be looked to be dropped or adjusted. So it's sort of building in those safeguards. I would also add that 
during the pandemic, and, and I believe that this trend in retail is one that started before that time, but the pandemic did accelerate it, was to see a, really a structural change taking place in the retail market. And, and because of that, a lot of value was lost a lot of rental value estimations were lost. So we have seen so much value loss in the retail sector that when you start to compare the values of where some of those assets sit today, they are very much in line with their long-term fundamentals. And what I mean by that is, again, going back to the asset in Bromley that we acquired, we bought that for a capital value of £100 per square foot. In a location, Greater London, where there would be high demand for residential units, the price that we have paid for that asset is more than supported by the land value for that alternative use residential redevelopment. So yes, we've got the income stream. Yes, the income stream is backed up by the tenant's revenue. And yes, we believe the downside from a capital perspective is protected by that alternative use value. And that is something that's present in that asset in Bromley and that really got us comfortable with it. It's also something that we found in the, the more recent purchase in Preston. That's actually not something that's that's just unique to those assets. It's something that we have always looked for in our investment strategy when buying for AWU. We have always looked to alternative use values for assets and, and even vacant values for assets to look to protect the downside for our shareholders. But if you're into alternative use, you're into kind of planning and all those kind of things, aren't you, in many cases? How often actually in practice have you ever done that? Have you actually put properties you've had into alternative use? Perhaps you haven't had the need to until now, but maybe you'll be tested quite soon. Yes, you're right that once you start to talk about alternative use, you will most likely be talking about planning. But planning is not a particularly difficult process to go through, specifically in terms of change of use or outline planning. And what we have proven with some of our assets in the past is where we can gain that even indicative or outline planning consent that is relatively easy to get compared to the cost of a, a wholesale redevelopment. That planning consent, however indicative, alone can be enough to realise significant value. And I have already touched on this called the sale of an office park in Oxford called East Point Business Park that we made um, from AEWU in, I think it was August that the sale completed in last year. That was an office park on the edge of Oxford, which we sold for life sciences redevelopment and, and life sciences use to an, an institutional purchaser who had medium term plans for redevelopment. And we crystallised significant amount of profit on that sale that was announced to the market at the time. Um, and the reason for that was, is that on one of the units, we had achieved an outline planning consent or change of use planning consent for a medical related use. And because of that, this purchaser was able to value the asset, not as if it were a fairly secondary office park on the edge of Oxford, but a prime bespoke life sciences focused asset. So you're right that once you start talking about alternative uses, it can take you down a planning route. But we often find that that fairly simple planning route can add a significant amount of value. And then you can sell the asset on, crystallize a lot of profit without having to go through the significant risk and headache that's associated with a wholesale redevelopment. And of course, we would not want to be taking on in this strategy the risk profile that's associated with that wholesale redevelopment. Okay. So I did notice actually last year you acquired a nightclub in Cardiff. That seems rather an exotic thing to do. <laughs> You're not going to change that into a uh, shopping centre or something, are you? We aren't. But again, that comes back to looking at the amount of revenue that that tenant is generating from the asset. 
And we had a lot of visibility on that there too. I believe that Central Cardiff is a uh, fairly renowned location for these types of activities and the tenant is trading very well. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. I won't be going there myself, I'm afraid to say. I think I'm probably a little old for that. Uh, but let's come back then to this issue of valuation and the dividend. I mean, now you, the trust pays, I think, a dividend about 2p a quarter, so 8p a year, something like that. And your share price has, has obviously come down a little bit from, I think, a high of 130. It's back down to around a pound now. And you trade on a, what is a relatively small discount for the sector at the moment, about 5 or 6%, I think. So let's just tackle this dividend issue. I mean, as I said, you didn't cut your dividend during the pandemic, which showed some qualities that other trusts didn't have. Uh, how secure is this AP dividend at the moment? I mean, is it covered by earnings? It obviously looks very attractive, particularly with the gilt yields now coming down a little bit. But how secure is that AP dividend? So we have paid out our dividend of two pence per share per quarter now for 30 consecutive quarters. And that is since our initial Uh, ramp up following IPO. So effectively, once we reach scale after IPO, we have consistently paid that dividend at that level. And the dividend is, of course, set by a board. And to date, the board have taken the decision to pay that dividend over that period, even despite that being during some times of uncover. And the reason why they have done that, I believe, is because they believe that that dividend looks to be sustainable over the long run. And when I say sustainable, Of course, I've just alluded to there have been times that that dividend payment has not been fully covered by earnings. But if we include into that profit from the sale, profitable sale of assets, then the dividend has been covered by both of those things over the course of time. And the board believe that in the future, it is sustainable for the company to reach that level of cover again. So particularly over the last year, I've already touched on that significant sale of the Oxford asset. Because that asset and the asset in Glasgow were being sold for alternative use, we were required by the vendors to build into the assets a certain amount of vacancy such that the development could begin sooner and they could start to look at the assets for that alternative use. Those decisions were taken in order to maximise the sale of those assets. But of course, then that was quite painful to the company's dividend on the way through. I've touched on then the resulting profit that we achieved from that. And of course, if you take that into account, then the dividend is covered by profit and earnings. But of course, over the long run, we are looking to maximise the level of the company's earnings and return as close as we can to that target. And we have seen a lot of improvement in that over the last 12 months and particularly during the last quarter. And that's a trend that we expect to see continuing over future quarters. So I've talked about in our the company's NAV announcement last week, and, and we did a call yesterday as well, how we are currently looking to recycle from some of our lower yielding assets at around yields of close to 6% into these purchases that we are now making at yields of around 85 to 9%. So we have seen a lot of improvement in the company's dividend cover in the past year from that low point associated with those sales. And we expect to see further improvement in cover going forward. Right. So if those 8% yields out there are looking attractive, presumably you'd quite like to do a few more of them as you could find them. But your shares obviously trading at a discount at the moment. You were trading pretty close to par for quite a little while. If you were able to uh, issue new equity, would you consider that or not? If the pricing of the shares supported it, then yes, we would love to issue new shares because it would allow us to have a greater ability to access our pipeline. And, And that's really what we see as being very interesting at the moment. Yeah, I mean, you've got a pipeline which is considerably larger than you've got spare capital at the moment. 
which is a good sign in one sense, but it's not something you can act on straight away. So let's just turn back to the market then. And where do you think the market's going from here? We have obviously seen NAV sort of stabilize a little bit, depending on where you are and what sector you're in and so on. What are you seeing out there in the market at the moment in terms of, you know, if you're looking ahead, do you think you're going to get more opportunities at 8% or even at 9% or God knows what? Or do you think we've actually been through the worst of this repricing that's gone on? I believe that we are significantly through the worst of the repricing. I think that's been proven now with the steep value loss that we saw in Q4 and shown in our own valuations. But of course, other companies have uh, published valuations now for Q1 and they are considerably stabilised from what we saw in Q4. So yes, I believe we are very much through the worst of that. What I do expect to continue though is this area of opportunity where we are able to find mispriced assets at a higher yielding level in very strong locations. How long that will continue for? I think it's definitely a feature of the market whilst there is lower investment volume. But I I think as I've kind of already set out in this smaller lot size bracket in which we operate of 5 to 15 million, we, over the course of the last eight years of running this REIT, have been finding that as a significant opportunity set. And being unconstrained by sector allows us to look across the market in perhaps that counter-cyclical way that I've described to find value where others don't. So that was Laura Elkin, the portfolio manager for AEW UK REIT. Ticker A-E-W-U for those who want to take another look at it. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.